0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday afternoon session QA. I'm here to answer questions, any questions people might have about their practice. Chris is here to help by asking the questions. It's a tumultuous time. We have, we have many, many concerns as human beings, many challenges as a human race. I was reading a debate today between two Buddhist scholars. First thing it made me realize is I'm not a Buddhist scholar. (laughs) I couldn't do what they do. Quoting and citing, not to that extent, it's admirable. Some people know a lot about all the teachings the Buddha gave. certainly not something to dismiss or trivialize. But the debate was about whether war can ever be just, whether violence can be justified, whether breaking the general, the general question of whether Ethics are relative, whether you can have absolute ethics. And the one scholar, as a traditionalist, as an orthodox Buddhist monk, was quite adamant that ethics are absolute. And the other scholar, being more of a modern engaged Buddhist monk, uh, argued that you could condone breaking ethics, killing, even killing, lying of course. In certain instances where consequences of not killing or not lying were great or were, were negative. I didn't read the whole debate as I said I'm not a scholar and that's probably one of the reasons I can't bring myself to get too interested in all the long arguments not to not not to denigrate it by any means just to each their own I mean to some extent to some extent it, it is a, it is interesting to note that something something that seems to me to be true is it's always important to be right but it's not always a good idea to try to make other people think that you're a uh, Agree with you, you know. Just because you're right doesn't mean you should spend all your time arguing about it with others. It's not the goal to win arguments. It's not the goal to, it's not even the goal to teach other people. It's, it's actually less important. I think that the truth of your answer is less important than the the helpfulness of your answer. Now let me qualify that. I don't think saying something that's not the truth is ever helpful. But the fact that it's true and the truth of it is not what's really help it's not what's really important. Cuz you can tell someone the truth and it be not very helpful. So so I mean maybe Yes, it has to be true. But it's possible to focus too much energy on the truth, and and not enough energy on the help. So the question is, how helpful was this argument? That's my question. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it seems sometimes we stray too far into the getting your point across. Got to get my point across. Got to make them understand my point. And maybe they do understand your point, but maybe they hate you in the process, right? Maybe they get angry or frustrated or humiliated. We're not here to defeat or conquer each other, right? I'm not saying that's what was going on here, but important points to keep in mind. And the Buddha pointed this out to us. I I agree with the traditionalist, but I think. Again, I didn't read the whole argument, but I think something that was kind of, if not overlooked, at least trivialized or, or not given the attention it deserved, was that ethics isn't really about the benefit to other people. It really is irrelevant from an ethical standpoint what happens to other people because of your actions. I mean, that's a radical view, and I I think a reason why probably this this debate was published in a popular Buddhist magazine, I think. And that just sort of thing doesn't go down well with the general public, even the general Buddhist public. It's a radical idea. And ethics has nothing to do with effects on others. I don't know if I'm right. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe you disagree with me. It seems to me that that's the truth seems to me that that's um, a more powerful way of looking at it. A more, I mean, easier to, well, really, it's the only possible way of actually answering your questions about ethics. Should I do this? Should, is this ethical? Is this unethical? I think by its very nature, you can't answer that question if you rely on what's it going to do to other people. And you don't really know, right? and then you know the the problems that they were sort of getting into are well okay this 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 appears to be have a good result now but what are the results going to be down the road like in Sri Lanka to i don't know if I should bring up a specific example but it appeared that there were some monks in Sri Lanka who were blessing the the military's actions to wipe out the uh, the enemy you know, the people who were fighting against the, go- the, the government wipe them out it was a blessing to go and kill I mean they probably didn't use those words but it was quite clear They, everyone knew and they knew and they said we normally wouldn't condone killing but here we do go and, and the argument was well this has gone on for so long it's just hurting people and the results of doing this will be positive but of course there's the argument how do you know it will be positive and positive in what way and for how long and with what unexpected negative consequences of destroying the purity of your ethics right whereas before you were absolute and had an unshakable sense of ethics now you've got grays now you're not really sure what's ethics anymore So it may be taking the easy way out, but it certainly is easier. You have to give it that, when ethics are only related to the consequences to yourself. What are the consequences of lying, stealing, cheating, killing? There's a great, I've gone back to this several times, I read a book once, a famous book in English they call, the translation is Crime and Punishment. By Dostoevsky, it's about a man who kills two women. Pretty meaningless. I mean, in senseless, not meaningless. Senseless, like there was no reason for killing them. But that wasn't the point. He argued that if he were a great man, anyway, it's kind of a philosophical argument. But he he he, he didn't. He figured he could somehow rise above the consequences. And the consequences, the punishment, turned out to be entirely what it did to his own mind. Nothing to do with the consequences imposed upon him by society. It was interesting. But you can answer a lot of ethical dilemmas if you're subscribed to this simple formula of ethics. It doesn't answer the question for most people because most people don't know what it does to your mind, right? But that's the that's the beauty of mindfulness. That mindfulness doesn't just teach you what's good, it doesn't just become an understanding of how to be mindful and so on. It also teaches you what's bad. It teaches you ethics. It teaches you what hurts yourself. And the beauty is also that what hurts yourself and ends up being truly beautiful. What hurts yourself ends up being what's harmful to others. Abstaining from what's harmful to yourself is what's truly beautiful for the world, for others. It's truly beautiful in the world. It may not be something that necessarily helps others. It may... Indirectly cause other people suffering when they're angry at you for not doing what they want. When they blame you for not acting in a way that you could have. There's no one in this world who is free from blame. i are going to blame you if you do, blame you if you don't. very difficult, very complicated, and I think they're uh, categorically unattainable, the knowledge of what your your actions are going to do for the world around you. So in some sense it felt like they were missing an important point, but again I didn't read the whole thing, so just some thoughts. All right, so the first part, which is over now, everyone can say hello. Hello everyone, good afternoon. Uh, But now, I'm going to ask everyone to stop posting comments and chatting in chat. You can close your eyes, it's a good way to go. If you have questions, you can post them. And the only thing we're going to allow in chat from now on is questions. Anything else will be deleted until we reach the end. And when we reach the end, then you can say whatever you want again. Within reason. Everything has to be kind and thoughtful and mindful. All right,
1: we're ready, Chris? Ready, Bante.
0: Go ahead. Let's begin.
1: Now, 10 minutes feels like 30 minutes had felt when I started. Time flows way slower in my life. Can you explain?
0: 10 minutes feels like 30 minutes had felt. Hmm. Well, I, my first thought is that that's probably temporary. That, I mean, it, it obviously has something to do with your frame of mind, and you've probably experienced similar things in the past where time goes very quickly because you're excited and passionate, probably because you're drunk on brain chemicals, so you're not paying as much attention. Uh, And when time goes very slowly because you're wanting it to go quickly or because you're bored, etc. So it depends very much on the state of mind. And, well, mindfulness is a different state of mind. So it can very much be... I mean, it can be temporary. So you might find that time goes quicker later. But I think that's a good general sort of observation that your mind starts to slow down you start to observe more you're more present I wouldn't read too much into it much more important is how you feel about that do you like that, do you dislike that all of that should be noted are you worried or afraid or confused wondering about that should note all of that as well
1: When we note a persistent object, for example, worried, should we ignore the rise and fall to give full attention to it until it fades? What to do when new objects arrive without the previous ones ceasing?
0: Yeah, try and stay with it. But the thing about things like worry is they don't actually persist for a long time. Worry is just a part of the equation. There's worry and then there's all the physical sensations. As you get better, you'll start to see that actually worry is something fleeting. It just gives rise to physical sensations, and then the thoughts that gave rise to the worry will arise again and make you worried again, and that sort of thing. You say worried, worried. If you're you're sharp, you should see that the worry doesn't last. But anyway, note, note things until they disappear. If you can, I mean, in the beginning it's going to be a bit of a uh, mishmash, and if you get distracted by something else, you can note it as well. Just try your best to once you've noted something, note it till it's gone and go back to the rising and falling. It's not, there's no hard and fast rule. It's like I'm teaching you warfare and you got to go out in the war and you realize it's not quite as textbook as I make it out to be. That's how war works. It's, it's ugly. So do what you can and keep the principles in mind. Try your best. It's not really going to go wrong as long as you're being mindful. All these detailed qu- de- questions about details like this are not that important. Don't be too concerned about this way or that way.
1: I have a medical sleeping problem, so is it okay to meditate with my eyes open?
0: It's okay. You can go ahead and do that. I'm not sure why... That would be related to your medical sleeping problem. It sounds like maybe you fall asleep with your eyes closed. Is that the idea? If so, you might want to do standing meditation instead with your eyes closed. Eyes closed is better, so try if you can, but maybe standing meditation would work for you. Maybe you're not sitting cross-legged with your back, to back erect. If you're sitting in a chair or something, that can be more likely to cause you to fall asleep. But it's not... Not technically forbidden to do with your eyes open. It's just gonna be more distracting as all.
1: How do I deal with people who only want to talk about themselves? Should I note hearing or tell them to stop?
0: Just note hearing. There's no need to tell people to stop. I hear people talk about themselves all the time. That's what I do for a living. No, that's what I do for a living, really, but that's what I do as a... Every day I do that. Listen to people talk about themselves. It's okay. Sometimes you just have to listen. It's not always the best for them to go on and on about themselves. It's probably something you're noticing is that this is pretty egotistical about them to... And I'm not talking about people who talk to me, but sometimes in your life people will talk about themselves, brag about themselves, etc., that sort of thing. And you realize it's not so great for them to be doing that, but your, your, your duty in life is not to help other people. Um, it's great to do it when you can, but it's a very tricky thing to actually help people. Would telling them to stop help them? Naively, you might often think yes, but quite often the answer is probably no. Probably it just makes them dislike you. It's just not very good. But as your meditation teacher, if that's what I am to you, I would say no to hearing, hearing. should never really tell people to stop. You never do that with things. That's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is to be mindful of things, to be cognizant of what it is rather than what you want it to be and how you can make it be the way you want it to be, and so so on.
1: In the formal meditation sessions, I have developed a habit of checking from time to time if I am being mindful. Can it become an obstacle?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, any kind of habit like that, if you're developing it. If you have developed it already, you're just your goal is to just note that you have and not knowing, knowing. But if you're actively developing it, that can be a problem. You don't need crutches like that. Having said that, you know, to some extent, I would say it's more be- beneficial at the end of a, a session to make note of whether you were mindful at that time. But even during the session, just don't let it become obsessive. I don't know. I guess I'm ha- I- I mixed on this. If it's not a huge problem, to stop and to reflect on whether you're being mindful could be helpful. Just don't get obsessive about it, like you have to do that, or trying to remind yourself and getting upset when you forget to check, etc., that sort of thing. I wouldn't say you really need it, I would say in the long term it's just going to be a distraction. As you commit to some kind of schedule like that. Maybe it's something in the beginning that would be more useful. You try and let it go after a while.
1: When I get anxious, I start hitting my lips. How do I note that?
0: Note the feeling. I mean, you could say hitting, but just the feeling. Hitting? Hitting with your hand, maybe. Touching with your hand, kind of. You say touching or hitting. And of course, note the anxiety and so on. Anxiety, this is the thing about anxiety. There's the physical response, and there's the mental anxiety. And there's also the thoughts that make you anxious and all of that. So try and note these things individually.
1: I'm new to meditation and I have my most serious academic deadline coming up soon. Is it wise to ease off the meditation and let myself be more anxious and blinded to fight off procrastination? No. No, anxiety won't help you.
0: I get what you're trying to say, but procrastination is something you should work on through mindfulness. Try and figure out why you're procrastinating. I don't know, if you're not very skilled in meditation, you might not be able to do that, and you might want to go back to more conventional ways, like drinking a lot of caffeine, (laughs) I think it can be good anyway for 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 the for the brain. I think in the long term probably not, but in the short term it can be good to accelerate your brain activity. That's what I found. But I don't think anxiety. is a good thing, and I don't think mindfulness is bad for for your academic for for academia. Mindfulness can be very good. Or I mean, it's much better than caffeine for organizing the mind and uh, streamlining your thought your thought patterns. Try and take the procrastination as a as an object. What is going on in your mind when you procrastinate? You can deconstruct it. You can actually free yourself from it.
1: If one tries to be mindful throughout the day in everything he does, would he still need to do sitting and walking meditation? And if so, why?
0: Because trying doesn't equate to doing. Trying, trying requires skill. And formal walking and sitting is the means of acquiring that skill. So if one were to just try that, most likely the lack of skill would cause one to fail. Now you can try and see how it goes, but my my uh, prediction for you is that you would probably, or well, for such a person, is that they would probably fail, and so they should undertake to do formal meditation. It's not magic. It's not like it's any different from anything else you do. It's just less distracting, less uh, chaotic more predictable and focused. And so the benefits are going to be more more pronounced, more acute.
1: How do I start meditating if I have never had contact with Buddhism?
0: Well, glad you asked. So, we have a booklet on how to meditate. Put them both in a booklet, and we have a meditation course. So, I would recommend to read the booklet. And once you've done that, then you can sign up for the at home meditation course if you're really interested in it. Because the book will only give you the first exercise and it's not really enough to learn how to meditate in our tradition. You require no background in Buddhism or meditation to start these processes. And we'll meet once a week. You just do an hour of meditation a day and and we meet and talk and I'll ask you questions, you'll ask me questions and I'll give you a new exercise every week. It's all free. There's no catch. It's just our way of doing good in the world. So you're welcome to try that.
1: While practicing, I often think about having to focus and the instructions instead of the practice itself. I find this rather discouraging. Am I doing something wrong? If so, what might help?
0: think about having to focus and the instructions Hmm. well that seems like uh, an expected result or expected activity for a beginner in anything really it's awkward and you forget what you're supposed to be doing and you worry about what you should be doing and are you doing it right and so on that's what practice is for. The more you practice, the less that will come up. If you feel discouraged, just say discouraged, discouraged, uh, upset, or so on. Frustrated, worried. But if you're thinking of the instructions, you can also start to note thinking, thinking. It'll come to you. It's just practice, 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 practice. It just takes time.
1: Sometimes there's nothing to note in my head or body. Should I go back to the breath and note the breath, or can I stay in emptiness?
0: Well, we would go back to the stomach and note the rising and falling of the abdomen. I don't know if you've read the booklet on how to meditate. To note, nothing to note, so you are doing our practice. Um, but when you... Uh, When you feel emptiness or or quiet, you might note to yourself, quiet, quiet, and if you like it, you can say liking, liking, that is a valid object, so the answer is yes, you can, note it until it goes away, if after a while it doesn't go away, go back to the rising and falling.
1: It's easier for me to count to 10 instead of boring, rising, falling. Should I stick to rising, falling, or do both?
0: That's a good question.
1: It's a good question,
0: and it's a bad question. It's a bad question because boring is not a problem. Boring is your problem. It's not a problem with the rising and falling. You got the problem that you're bored. Things can't be boring. That's just the nature of things. They're not boring. That's not a quality of things. That we find things boring is all on us. And you have to note to yourself, bored, bored. Number one. Number two, it's easier. The fact that something's easier is generally a bad thing. Generally a bad thing. Meditation is a challenge. It's meant to challenge you. It's meant to cultivate qualities of mind that you don't already have. It's like developing muscles that you don't already have. If you were to say to me, it's easier for me to lift 10 pounds than it is for me to lift 20 pounds, is that okay? I would say, no, that's not okay. Lift 20 pounds because the challenge is there for a reason. It's meant to cultivate muscles. Number two. Number three, what's the problem with counting to 10 really? The numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 have nothing to do with the reality of your situation, of your experience. Rising has something very much to do with the reality of your experience. It's a concept, but it's a concept that names a reality. The reality is that, that feeling, the experience of the expansion of the stomach. That's what we call it in English. People who don't speak English are kind of confused because it's not rising, it's going out. But that's how we say it in English, rising, falling. In Thai it's pong na, no, yup no, which means more like inflating, deflating. Which you could also say, inflating, deflating, expanding, contracting. But those are a part of the experience, the numbers are not. And so they do not work, they are not valid, and they are certainly not recommended.
1: Is it ideal to perform walking meditation with the eyes open or closed?
0: It is ideal to perform the walking meditation with the eyes open, mainly because you might just fall over if you walk and you won't walk straight and you'll be distracted by that. It's very hard to walk back and forth with your eyes closed.
1: I can often always hear my heartbeat so could this be a more beneficial object than the rising and falling of belly as I have no chance of controlling my heartbeat
0: no it won't be that no there's nothing really more beneficial than the rising and falling because the rising and falling is always gonna be there you can often hear your heartbeat so you could say it's always there okay debatable but There's another reason, it's because that's the way we do it in this tradition, right? There's nothing wrong with noting the rising and falling, just like there's nothing really wrong with noting the heartbeat. So because we tell you to do the one thing, that's a reason why you do the one thing, and you just learn to do it. But every time you hear your heartbeat, you would note hearing, hearing until it goes away or until you realize it's not going to go away and you've had enough, and then go back to the rising and falling. You also have no chance of controlling the rising and falling as much as you might think otherwise, but that's what you'll learn from observing it. In that sense, it's actually a better object because we do think we're controlling it. It's a good lesson to learn that you're not
1: Is it okay to meditate with sounds like meditation music on YouTube? Probably haven't
0: read our booklet on how to meditate otherwise I think you'd know the answer to this I've asked, I answered this before and I guess the question I have to ask in response is why? Why would you meditate with sounds? It's okay for there to be sounds While you're meditating, you should just note hearing, hearing. But the fact that you deliberately put on specific sounds gives the impression that you like those sounds or that you find them preferable, helpful, etc. And that none of that is the case. None of that is helpful. If you're intentionally putting on certain sounds, they're going to be a problem and a distraction, a cause for complacency, a cause for attachment, desire, liking. Even if it's just the attachment to the calm that they create, still an attachment. Why do you need them? Why can't you be sad? Satis- be content with the chaos of experience. That's not as satisfying or delightful. It's generally because of liking, disliking, even views about how meditation should be. All of that you have to throw aside and. Try and be aware of experience as it is, without your control. But if you haven't read the booklet, I recommend doing that.
1: Can I adopt Buddhist meditation practices, techniques, philosophies, while still adhering to my Jewish culture and faith, what I was born into?
0: to some extent, yeah you just have to figure out where the conflict might be and if there is some kind of conflict like there's little conflict with a lot of Jewish culture I'm Jewish, that's my background but the faith part Hmm. I don't know, I mean a lot of the faith is historical so the faith that this happened or that happened it's not really important but faith in God in any way um, what does that even look like The real problem, I think, with Judaism is that um, the precepts differ. So in Judaism, there's a general acknowledgement of it being okay to kill and take drugs and uh, take alcohol, anyway, and that doesn't jive with something very uh, basic in Buddhism. So here's my question to you: Does that include drinking alcohol and killing killing living beings? Because that won't jive with something very basic about Buddhist practice and you actually couldn't do a meditation course in our tradition if you continued to do those two things uh, apart from that apart from that anything else is going to be much more subtle and 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 uh, dependent on how far you want to go really if in the end you decide to become a devout buddhist whatever that means you may start to find yourself giving up some of the devotion to other religions, but but apart from those two precepts, you really don't have to think about any of that because Buddhism is quite Buddhism is quite simple. It's about freeing yourself from suffering, and it's just about the practice of mindfulness, which anyone can do. You don't have to think about religious conflict at all.
1: Is it possible for someone to meditate who has a physical disability which prevents them from sitting in a meditative posture?
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Posture is not nearly... Um. Not 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 very important at all. Not nearly one of the mo- one of the important things we sh- we, we concern ourselves with. So it, there there's benefit to certain postures for sure, but it's not a great great benefit. So people who are unable to do the traditional official recommended postures are not going to lose out very much at all. I have one student who's one of our best, one of my best and longest, oldest students, who's, um, I don't know if you could say, I mean, almost paraplegic? Not really, but, no, not really, but has trouble walking, has trouble standing, and so has, uh, has to sometimes... Uh, Improvise. I had one student who was in a wheelchair, a paraplegic, and just taught him how to do sitting meditation. And then we started talking about crutches. He, he he could actually, to some extent, propel himself using crutches. I had one woman who was on who had multiple sclerosis, and uh, we had her do walking meditation. By lying on her walker and kicking with her legs, that was the best she could do. All right, but for sitting meditation, um, yeah, you can sit against the wall. A lot of people do that. You can even do it lying down if you just can't sit at all. But sitting in a chair, I mean, it's quite simple. Just sit in a chair. Something we advise for lots and lots of people who have these sorts of problems. The Buddha even said we've got a we've got us explicit permission. The Buddha said, Whatever position the body is in, you note, note in that position.
1: While staying with people, how can one note all that is going on? For example, hearing, talking, desire of wanting to be something in the eyes of others. All this while listening, thinking, and answering.
0: Practice. This is an example of why it's important to do formal meditation practice. Because that formal practice will provide you with the skills you need. It's like when you study karate, you do uh, forms, you do movements movements seem somewhat pointless, but they become engrams, they become habits, they become skills, and you can apply them in your life. the, The analogy with karate is useful because you should also, while doing these practice exercises, go out and spar with each other, because it's useful in another way to help you actually apply what you're learning in your daily life. So you should be doing both in your daily life, both being mindful when you're doing formal practice and mindful when you're not doing formal practice. Practice, practice, practice. You could could point out that when you're staying with people, that's sort of like the test. It's not a very good way to start your practice. So rather than being concerned overly with staying very mindful when you're with people, start by doing it when you're not with people and work your way up to the test of being able to do it around people.
1: Is it okay to notice the chest instead of the stomach? Try not to.
0: Try to put your hand on your stomach in the beginning until you're able to. You'll find that eventually the breath moves. It actually shifts down to the stomach. It's usually to do with stress, tension in the body. But work on it. Work on trying to be aware of the stomach moving because it's going to move there eventually anyway and you want to you want to establish that as something you are aware of. Build the habit of Seeing the, stomach, seeing the stomach rise and fall. It's just something we're unfamiliar with and we're not really there yet because we live stressful lives mostly and because we spend very little time focused on such a thing.
1: How to develop a discipline for meditation. One day I will set a time aside for meditation and the second day back to chaos. How to inculcate consistency.
0: Well, over time, I mean, one thing you have to recognize is that the chaos and the unpredictability from one day to the next is not uh, it's not unexpected. It's a part of reality. It's a part of the meditation to see that Life is unpredictable. That's just the nature of reality. And it's something that we fail to recognize and to to take seriously enough. So a big part of the practice and the skill we're trying to develop is to be able to cope with chaos, chaos with impermanence. So rather than trying to inculcate consistency in your... Um, That's not really what you're asking, I suppose, but it's important to note that it might be part of your thinking. Uh, Rather than trying to maintain consistency in experience, try and just maintain consistency in your approach to the experience. But as far as not being able to set aside time for meditation, the connection there might be that the reason why you're not setting time aside is because of the change in your mood and you should be able, so, so the one day your mood is good and so you're able easily to want to meditate and the second day you just have to figure out why it is that you're averse to meditating or avoiding it or forgetting about it and attack that, but it's going to be a different set of skills you have to develop the second day because your your mood is different so the, the, adapt, the ability to adapt from one experience to the other rather than try to always want to meditate or try to always have an easy time making time for meditation. Good way um, answer. Apart from that, all of that is to do a meditation course because psychologically that really helps you to have someone you're accountable to, a teacher, who tells you you have to do so much meditation a day. Just a thought. If you're interested in doing a course, we have an at-home course. You do an hour a day. We meet once a week.
1: What do people have to meditate on if they're lustful? Do we just note lusting or do we meditate on the certain impure organs of a human being?
0: You can meditate on the organs. It's considered to be useful. Uh, But in mindfulness, which is has a deeper results but it's maybe less effective immediately um, but in mindfulness over the long term you eventually have to note lusting and note the pleasure that comes from lusting or from getting the object of your lust note thinking when you have thoughts about lusting thoughts about an object note seeing when you see something that you might lust after break the experience up into constituent parts. It's not just lusting. There's other things involved there, and you don't want to miss any of them. That's not quite true. You can note any one of them, but sometimes one of them is prevalent and you fail to note it, so try and note whatever's prevalent. It's not always the lusting. You don't have to note every single thing, just try and note the one thing that stands out to you. When it gets really intense and you just need a quick solution, you can also do that, what you said, uh, meditating on the parts of the body, hair, skin, teeth, nails, flesh, bones, blood, hard to lust after those
1: things. How can we control the mind to control negative thoughts and behavior like anger, lust, hostility, and restlessness?
0: We can't. We can't control the mind. The mind is a thing. It's a concept, but it's made up of complex, a complex variety of habits that interact with each other and perpetuate each other that have a power of their own based on the power they've been given and are continued to be given. And our goal is to sort out through observation, through clarity of mind, to sort out and organize and discard or develop these habits based on their value to us once we see clearly not to control them. So, if those things really are bad, you'll see it as you observe, and you'll get rid of them as you understand them, without having to intentionally do any of it. The truth is actually that powerful. It actually does set you free.
1: Sometimes I would get distracted and forget which touchpoint to do next. Should I just start from the first one again?
0: Yes, if you can't remember which one you're at, just start from the first. If you remember partway, you can start from which one you remember. If you remember part of the way, right? Start from where you remember.
1: I have been suicidal for a long time. Yesterday I came to the realization that I am only clinging to the concept of death because I cannot know what death is. Does death exist?
0: It's a good question. Very good question. No, death does not exist. Not ultimately. That's the whole point. Well, that, that's a, an important point in relation... To, that's the whole point regarding rebirth. Uh, karma, etc., all these questions people have about rebirth. It's not that there is some rebirth, there's just death. Uh, There's just not death. There's death, death is every moment. Every moment we're born and die, born and die, born and die. The only true death is the death of defilement, the death of clinging. When you stop clinging then you're you're free from this cycle of being reborn again and again and again. But yeah, that's uh, a real antidote to suicide when you realize that death isn't even actually a thing. And all you're going to be doing by committing suicide is some fairly weighty negative intentions that are going to propel you in a bad direction. That's all, nothing special. Now, there is something, I mean, putting that aside, Death, obviously, is a fairly traumatic experience, it's still just an experience. But because it's so traumatic and we lose so much, something that we're so attached to, namely the human body, that it does generally propel ordinary people in very violent ways, like to hell or to heaven. So if you're not mindful, if you haven't cultivated mindfulness, whether you're suicidal or not, uh, death is a very weighty experience for that reason can propel you in, in in a good or bad direction depending on your state of mind mindfulness helps us to have positive states of mind consistently in the face of overwhelming experiences like that but even still the moment of death it, it ceases and then there's another moment of experience right after it it's just that that next moment is often very much unrelated to the last moment because we've lost the body and we got to cope with something new.
1: I have 30 days of vacation time for meditation retreats a year. Would you generally recommend one long intensive retreat over, say, three 12-day courses?
0: So you're asking me. Uh, I had, I had, I'm hedging this because it depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about our tradition, then a thirty day would be better than three twelve days, because we don't have really a twelve day course. That being said, you could do the first course in twelve days but it would still be better to take the time to do a second course a few days later, or a couple of days later, and do the review course. You could do the first one in 12 days if you've done the at-home course already. 12 days, maybe 14 at most. But 30 days gives you time to really go deeply. I think it's probably better... Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. You have to, be, you have to work it out with your teacher. So, if you're not doing it in this tradition, I don't really have much to say. But if you're doing it in our tradition, if, you know, if you're not doing it with a teacher, I tend to not recommend that for most people. If you're not, if you're doing it with me or with some other teacher, in our tradition then work it out with them, figure out where you're at in your practice. It may be that three twelve day courses would be good and why why I think why am I thinking on that? what my thinking on that is is that you could spread it out over the year, right which is probably your thinking as well. And that's good because it keeps bringing you back to the practice. So there's definitely benefit in that. You just have to figure out if, uh, where you're at allows you to have that first experience where you've you've done uh, everything like what I, in an ideal situation not your situation well not even ideal but in a better situation you would have 30 days and then two more 12 day periods right if you had that that would be great because then you could do 30 days as a real strong foundation and then you could refresh it twice more throughout the year But nothing is ever ideal, so I would say work it out with your teacher, what they recommend. And given your situation, I might generally recommend three periods. Maybe you could do two periods. Do 20 days and then 12 days or something. That might work. But still, three three 12 days sounds, sounds pretty good, honestly, as you're spreading it out throughout the year. And of course you're still meditating in between and there's not enough time for you to lose all that you've gained because of getting distracted by the world so you've got a whole year where you're probably pretty mindful.
1: To what degree is it useful to spend time studying the Tipitaka versus using that time for the meditation practice? Not to a very high degree.
0: Depending on whether you have a teacher or not. Because the teacher is going to take the place of studying the Tipitaka to a great extent. They're going to give you the information you need to know. It'll be a lot more streamlined. Remember that the Buddha often only taught one sutta, two suttas, a few suttas to his students um, and we probably need a lot more instu- instruction than those people got but the is not really wasn't taught to be read wasn't taught to be studied it was taught to help that person and so if you have to figure out what that means for you by reading the whole thing It's a lot less efficient than finding someone who already knows how it can work for you and is able to help you. It would be the difference between learning kinesiology yourself as opposed to going to a, a trainer who already has studied it, who can train you physically. I don't even know if kinesiology is what that is, but something like that. Okay, it's four o'clock. Lightning round. Is there any really important ones?
1: I have one more that I think i sorted higher. All right. Last one. And everybody else can start talking. You're free to start talking now. I so. prefer to meditate immediately after hiking. I first focus slowing down my breathing and heart rate, then reflect on my hike. Should I also try to incorporate meditation away from hiking?
0: Sounds like you might have not read the booklet, but you may have. Um, but but the, the, the key here is that your meditation is not like our meditation. So it's quite likely you haven't read the booklet because we're not interested at all about slowing down or speeding up things. And meditation is not reflecting on a hike. It's not reflecting on an experience. So I'd recommend reading the booklet, and you certainly can incorporate the techniques taught in the booklet on a hike. You'll probably see that as you read the booklet. Uh, but even still, it's much prefer more preferable. Well, it's, it's at least a little bit, yes, no, it's more preferable to do formal meditation practice because hiking is more complicated, and it involves more uh, external stimuli that's going to make it more challenging to be actually mindful. Remember, the word meditation could mean anything. And usually does. And this is an example of where it means one thing to you and it seems to mean something different to us. Hope that helps. And that's it. Thank you all for coming out. Sadhu. Sadhu. I never get a notification, but I don't suppose I would. But edit, you should know when these things start and begin. They haven't changed in weeks, months. I mean, we're not always here, but we've been pretty consistent. The time doesn't change, not here. So just ask. You should know when they are, of all people. All right, wish you all the best, everyone. Have a good day.